Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdina Osband, our daf of the day, Masechet Nedarim, daf bet, page two. We are starting a new Masechet. It is one of, known to be, classically, one of the third hardest Masechetot of the entirety of Shas. We've all, those of you who have been with us from the beginning, we've already done two out of the three, namely Erevin and now more recently Yevamot, and now Nedarim. Part of what is hard is because we're talking about language and we're talking about what people mean when they say and what they say. And it's going to become, we'll see as we delve in, you know, it gets tricky in formulation and in understanding it. Also, some so of you'll the love la- this stuff because it's all about language. I mean, it's, my <laughs> stuff. it's like Sorry. all about like, no, it really is a lot about language in a way that I don't understand. But I think a particular challenge is the translation piece also. Like in other words, we're going to be reading phrases in Hebrew. Many of us who are listening to this particular, you know, who are part of the Talking Talmud family, let's, you know, we use English as well. And I think that's also like a huge challenge. But I do want to say it's kind of nice. Like you'll be done with the three hardest masechtot. I'm, you know, just a little bit over three years into this because we'll finish it's the parts. It's kind of cool. It's very cool. And I also think that it's not just Hebrew to English. It's also even if we were, you know, if you're a native Hebrew speaker, the Hebrew of the Gemara, the Hebrew and the Aramaic together of the Gemara, we're going back a long time. We also don't have, and this is an important thing to note, we don't have our usual, you know, best friend and commentator Rashi as a comment, meaning I don't know who everybody is learning with in preparation. And many people I know are using English translations and so on. But but Rashi is the basis of much of that commentary. And on Masachat Nidarim, the if you look on a regular Vilna Shas page of the Gemara in the section that says Rashi, they know and they've known for a long, long time. This is not like new or nouveau, you know, fashionable uh, scientific study. Everybody knows it's not Rashi, and so instead, the main commentator who is of use in understanding, interpreting the text of the Gemara is known to be the Ran Rabbi Nisim. We'll talk about him in you know greater detail at some point when we actually you know, rely on him for a particular interpretation or something like that. Um, I want to also speak about what the issue is, right? Before we even get into the different kinds of vows and oaths and why it's so important, you know, that we, that they say, you know, your your word is your bond or, uh, you know, your, your word is your good name, that kind of thing, right? Every, a lot can be riding on people meaning what they say when they say it. But I've for a long time, I used to, you know, I've asked this question of what is so important about Nidarim? We, people walk around, I walk around saying, Bli Nidar, right? I'm not taking an oath in these words that make it sound like one could interpret them to be an oath, right? See you tomorrow. Well, that's just, an, uh, 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 you know, a, a, what's the right word here? It's a freeze. It's a, it's a, it's not a salutation because it's leaving, right? It's just a goodbye. But if you say see you tomorrow and then you don't see that person tomorrow, was that an oath? Was that not an oath? So this question of how important is it that our words are taken to mean what they literally mean becomes part of the underbelly of this masachet. And I want to connect this to the tefillah that we've all recently heard or said in 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 shul on Yom Kippur, right? That of Kol Nidre. Kol Nidre meaning all vows, all oaths. And if you recall the text, there's a lot of different phrasings of, that basically all translate to mean vows or oaths or, you know, pronouncements or, right, there's a 
long series of words that mean this. And Cold and Gray is understood by, I think, everybody to be this kind of very solemn, very important tefillah. And then you stop and say, wait, but why? Meaning you can say hatarat nedarim, you can undo vows in other ways. What is it that makes this thing of Kol Nidre to be such a serious time? Why is it that it's got this, you know, very like melodious but mournful tune that, you know, tugs at the heartstring when you're talking about what feels like something very businessy, right? Something transactional. It's It, it does not feel like this should be the pathos of the Jewish people. And so this year, it happens to be this year, I heard an interpretation that suddenly made it all click in, which is that in times of oppression, when Jews are forced to convert to other religions, as we know has happened at any number of different occasions in Jewish history, um, the idea is that then when you come to say Kol Nidre, you are undoing whatever, whatever you know, um, conversion or perhaps we can call it a false conversion you might have undergone for the sake of life-saving measures so then you come to Kol Nidre and it's truly this heartfelt poignant kind of thing I didn't mean it I'm not really taking on oaths practices vows and so on that take me away from God so the Masachet Nidarim does not talk about that right this is historical understanding of perhaps why Kol Nidre becomes so important, but the tefillah of Kol Nidre itself, with all of its specification about different kinds of phrasings that become or have the potential to become Nidarim, is very much what Amasachet is about. There are different kinds of oaths, right? There are vo- vows, oaths. I'm going to use these terms interchangeably, at least um, in terms of introduction, until we get into you know some of the details about what a phrase might be, and then we'll, you know, try to line up some English words to go with the Hebrew. But my point here is that there are that there are promises that are made to the Beit HaMikdash, right? That that's going to be a dedication or a consecration of something. And then that has its own identity of sanctity, right? And then um, you have, there's vows that a person takes upon themselves over what they then will then, by, by virtue of the language, what they will then go and do. Um, and then um, one of the points that is made is that people undertake vows or oaths on their own, meaning it's a voluntary assumption of responsibility. We're not talking about the fact that all Jews, you know, by, by dint of the Torah, all Jews are obligated in keeping the Torah. So to make a promise that you're going to do the thing that the Torah requires you to do anyway might actually be considered an oath in vain. Right. So we we end up in, you know, as I say, there's real complications as to what exactly we do with the language, how it is that we express ourselves and and what kind of, you know, what kind of trouble we can get ourselves into with these kinds of words. Um, Yeah, Dan, I think I'm going to turn it over to you for some actual text, if that's okay. that will as we go through. Right. Meaning we'll talk about each chapter as we get there. The first issue is about um, when we have different terms for vows and things that seem to be, um, again, some kind of oath or vow. Okay, so I will get started with this first uh, Mishnah. And obviously, it's a very challenging Mishnah. And if you look at the Tzurat Hadap, right, how the page is actually laid out, you'll see that most of it is actually uh, taken up by the commentary 
of the run itself. And you're actually going to see that the dapim here are not that long. There's a lot of commentary on each and every dap. So what this, uh, you know, Mishnah is going to start talking with is, you know, the whole concept of Nadarim is essentially that somebody wants to prohibit something to them, that somebody can't derive benefit from a particular object and they make it forbidden. And that's basically sort of the biblical concept of what a nedar is. And the way that that gets done is you have to actually verbalize that. It's not enough for you just to think it, but you actually sort of, you actually have to um, say it out loud. And this comes from Bamidbar chapter 30, uh, verse three, right? The Pasuk says, right? He can't desecrate his word according to whatever came from his mouth he should do. So that's partially where they learn from. It's something that you actually verbalize and actually articulate it out, you know, outside. And again, you you can say that it's something that you don't want to benefit from that's yours or your friends, right? It could be something that's owned by somebody else. And the way that you do that is, is that there's different ways to actually say this type of declaration. So what the mission is going to do here is essentially going to tell us you know, what are the different words for Nadar? And, and as you mentioned before, some of these are words that we see in Kol Nidre um, itself. So these are sort of like different types of formulations, right, that produce a del Raita, a biblically binding Nadar. That's essentially what this mission is dealing with here. Kol Nadarim Nadarim, right? Any sort of ter- equivalent terms for Nedarim are like an actual neder itself. The charamim ke charamim, right? And charamim are like charamim. Uh, so charamim, the, the singular is charam, are also, again, like a vow that's like a neder, right? The word charam, I think people have heard of, that's sort of like when you, the most common use of that is like we say a person was put in charam, meaning they're excommunicated. So you would say like, this object is cheyrem to me, right? Or is cheyrem, that would be, you know, that would be considered uh, an, uh, uh, an, an act of making that type of vow. All right, ushfuyo kishfuyo, right? And oaths are like oaths, okay? So again, instead of saying, um, I, you know, I, I, if a person says, uh, I take a shfua, you know, that I will not eat this bread. And instead somebody says, uh, has a different formulation, but uses the word shvuya in it, 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 still, it, it still would be considered to be a shvuya. Unizirut ke nizirut. And um, nizirut, right? Remember, a nazir is a person who uh, makes, puts himself in a state of naziris, which is that he will not cut his hair. He will not make himself tame, uh, right? Ritually impure with a dead body and will not eat any products of grapes. Um, so if a person says, right, so there could be different formulations of exactly how he could declare in his ears, and all of those are equal to each other. So now that the, you know, the, the Mishnah has sort of said anything that are sort of equal terms, now they're going to talk about the concept of partial terms, right? Omer somebody says to his friends, Modrani uh, Mimech, right? I am vowed from you. Or I'm separated from you. I'm distanced from you. Right? Or 
says, you know, which, which I eat of yours, which I taste of yours as sore, he is then forbidden. So in other words, these would sort of be unusual ways to make that neder. But the point is, is that even those formulations, which is not using the typical language of a neder, a cherem of shvua, they still are considered to be a declaration that would make the thing asur. Minudah right? I'm minudah to you. Um, so what is, you know, so this is a, a very interesting word. Minudah can have two different meanings. It can either mean like you're excommunicated or detached. Um, and, but here what the question is, it'll get discussed later on in the Gemara and Zav Zion, right? It doesn't, is it definitely a language of, of a, of a vow, Rabbi Akiva So Rabbi Akiva struggled with this, and because you're talking about a biblical prohibition, he basically said, "I have to be machmir. I'm not really sure what it is, and so I have to be machmir uh, with it." So you know the Gemara. Wait, wait. I just wanna, yeah. I just wanna kind of uh, two things. So one is on this last one, right? Part of this question of Menudani, If someone says, "I'm not saying it right," Menudani someone. Like there's nothing specific there, right? Like as opposed to other cases where we've seen even in Ketubot, right? Where we saw somebody says, I'm I'm not going to get any benefit from you, right? Or you you can't, you, my wife can't get any benefit from me, right? Those kinds of statements. There's a very specific, it's very sweeping general, but it it is a designated um, thing that is being sworn off. Here, when someone says, I'm sworn off from you without specifying anything, well, does it mean anything? Maybe it means nothing. And that's where Rabbi Kiva's Chumra comes in because, because uh-oh, what if it's, you know, this is a Doraita thing. So we'll take, he says, you know, so we'll, we'll say no Hana'a whatsoever, which may not at all be what was intended, but it doesn't matter because you don't, you want to be careful not to violate it. Um, and the only other thing I was going to say was just um, going back to something that you said, um, I, I saw examples that were kind of cute, like where if you're a substitute language for your shvua, let's say you want to say shvua, and instead you say shvuka, or you say shruya, or you say like, meaning it's very clear that what you're doing is saying an oath, but you haven't used the pre- precise language. And if you were to think that you could get out of it that way, the missionary here says, no way. You've used, you know, something that is a kinui, it is some kind of substitute for a shua right, for your oath yeah it's it's it, it means the same thing so uh, it, so the gemara here um i want to just focus on one piece of the gemara here that gets very interesting and i'm a bet which is it it starts off with this right this is the beginning of the gemara it's a little bit farther right it opens up with the laws of you know again I, i'll just use the english translation of equivalent terms Right, all of these are you know all equivalent terms for neder. Right, basically, it's considered to be a neder. But it gives examples for the category of partial decorations. Right, right. When it talks about that, partial declarations are still considered to be declarations. It gives specific examples in a way that it doesn't for the first category, which are full, you know, which are full decorations. Right. And furthermore, the Tana forgot to mention the law of partial declarations. He didn't even sort of like say it full out. He just sort of started to give examples of it. So the Gemara then says, you know, it's one of these right, that it should have said, right, it's 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 the Mishnah's missing some words. And it said, right. But again, it, what it basically wants to do is, is it, it wants to understand 
why does it give examples of the second category of partial declarations before it gives examples of the first category it mentions, which is these full declarations? And then essentially what the rest of the staff does is, is it gives multiple examples from other Mishnahs where they employ the same type of method, right? Where they say like, oh, this is a typical way, right? That Mishnah, uh, that Mishnah does this, right? Where essentially um, it, uh, you know, that it, it gives, uh, you know, where, where it gives the last thing, the last thing that's mentioned is the first thing to be explained. And so that's essentially what the rest of this staff does. And it gives uh, what I counted was five examples basically here. Then we'll see tomorrow how the Gemara at the bottom of this actually responds to this, you know, but um, but the Gemara tries to, it's interesting to see that, you know, the beginning discussion here has less to do with Nidarim, but has more to do with the style of the Mishnah itself, right? Why was the Mishnah constructed this particular way? Although in a, in a Masachet that is so attuned to language, it doesn't phase me as much, right? When that it gets into the the question of style, you know, versus the actual halacha. I do want to note, however, right? It's like the idea that it's going to elaborate on the last thing first makes sense to me. If then what happens is it were to go back and then elaborate on the first thing last so that we would have an A, B, B, A, chiasm, whatever, it would be fine. But instead what happens is we have the kol kinuye. We don't have any examples or explanations of the kinuyeim of these um you know, the equivalent language or the substitute language. And then we end up, we, we get told there's other things that also might have substitutes and equivalencies, but not examples. And then we get examples of the, of the, um, of the partial language. And the thing that strikes me about this, the way, the thing that strikes me about the Gemara is, you know, forgive me, but it sounds a little bit like the explanation after the fact when you've answered the question wrong on the test and now you're defending yourself about why you've done it that way. Again, forgive me, I mean no disrespect to the Mishnah. I'm sure the Mishnah, you know, is formulated this way because this is what the Mishnahic formulation needs to be. But the rationale is provided in the Gemara where it says, but look at all the examples of this where they only elaborate on the second part. I mean, so my question, I feel like that sharpens the question. It doesn't diminish it to say, yes, that's the style. And I want to say like, okay, but then why still? Why haven't you provided, you, the Mishnah, provide examples of the first thing each of those times, each of this time plus those other five? Yeah, I, I think that is, uh, you know, that's a great way. That's a great read of the uh, of the dot. See, I told you, Anne, you're going to be good at this myself because it's all about language. <laughs> I, I happen to, I will admit, I am intrigued and excited about this Masachet. Um, I like Tubot a lot. Um, I found Yevamot valuable. And, but this, I feel like it, it's so, it's so much our reality, meaning except for the part about Hektesh, the things that have been consecrated to the Beit HaMikdash, we all talk and we all talk a lot and we live in words and commitments and failed commitments. And I think that there's, I think it's really, you know, alive in a, different kind of way than the other topics that we've been talking about recently. Well, I'll add to that also. I mean, I don't think we live in a culture today that's particularly careful about language, right? We sort of give, uh, you know, I'm even thinking politically or just the way people, no, it's not what they meant. Oh, it's not what I meant. You're misconstruing what I said. It's not the context. And this is kind of a masachat or a topic that even just from the first mission is being like, words actually matter how you say something actually matters. Something can be held against you, 
right? You're not allowed to just say that wasn't my intention. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's huge. Meaning I think it's, that's, I think it's rich. I have the feeling that some of the nitty gritty details are going to become, you know, a morass and difficult. But I think that the overall, you know, thrust of this masachet is very timely for our era, for our selves. And I have the feeling that then we're going to annoy everybody with our precision of language afterwards. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend and Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.